Warriors, Tansei, Sego, Ani Buju, Quay, Neen Deluisi, Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And living our sovereignty on Turtle Island includes using our laws and governing powers to protect all living things in our territories from exploitation and abuse, from protecting our lands and waters from environmental destruction and contamination, to protecting all of our human beings and relatives from abuse and exploitation. All of this is part of our responsibilities. Throughout history, we've formed military, political, and social alliances with all different nations and peoples. And in recent decades, many of us in the Indigenous resistance and resurgence movement have stood in solidarity with Black communities against racism and violence inflicted on them by settler governments and certain segments of society. They too have stood with us when we were idle no more, wet so attend strong, and marching in the streets against police killings of our own peoples. This week, I've de dedicated my YouTube, podcast, and writings to bringing attention to the crisis of police killings of Black peoples and lifting the voices of our Black brothers and sisters so they can tell their stories. Today, we have someone with us that I consider a true social justice warrior and friend, Desmond Cole. He's not only well-known here in Toronto, Ontario, but nationally as not only a stellar journalist, author, and multimedia broadcaster, but he is also a staunch warrior and advocate for social justice and condemns anti-Black racism in all of its forms. And in all the time that I have known him, he always shows up for Indigenous peoples. He marched with us during Idle No More, and we marched with him during protests against police racism and violence against Black people. His integrity is evidenced in his actions in as much as his words. I am truly honored to know Desmond, and I am so thankful that he could take the time to join us on our Warrior Life podcast to talk about what's happening in the United States right now. Welcome to the show, Desmond. Thank you, Pam. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I, I really appreciate it because, you know, our listeners tune in here to get real information from the real warriors on the ground. And it's really hard for so many to wade through all the biased media coverage and to try to get at the truth, sometimes even just the facts of what's happening. And I'm wondering if you could just start a little bit about you and your background and how you got into advocacy. Okay. Uh, well, first I want to say that it's nice to be called a social justice warrior in a positive context. That's kind of cool. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Um, I really laugh at the idea that that could ever be a pejorative, but here we are. It's 2020. Um, I have been writing for uh, about 10 years now as a journalist. And um, before that, I was doing a lot of uh, activism, even though I didn't realize I was doing it, I guess at the time, uh, in the kind of um, housing and homelessness, uh, shelter for all, you know, healthcare services for all, harm reduction, youth world. 
I was working at a drop-in center for youth. Um, and uh, I had had my own experiences for two years after moving to Toronto of not having a place to live, utilizing the city's uh, shelter services, and really struggling um, after coming to the city. Uh, I really learned a lot about my own struggle, but other people's struggles. And I, I started really wanting to fight, especially for housing, for detox services, and for treatment services for people who wanted to stop using. I was really fighting harm for harm reduction, hard for harm reduction services to allow people to use safely if that's what they needed to do. Um, you know, safer sex practices and education. And that has really evolved. And um, that remains at like the heart about anti-racism and anti-oppression um, and about homelessness in Toronto. But my, my work in the last 10 years has really um, gone from covering a variety of issues at Toronto City Hall uh, to focusing a lot more specifically on blackness in the last five years and talking about the black struggle in this country and my own um, uh, desire as a black person to contribute to a liberation struggle that I see us all being in. So maybe nowadays people know me more for the later part of the work that I'm talking about. Um, but 15 years ago, I was a homeless young man in Toronto who couldn't believe how hard it was to find work and to pay rent. And 15 years later, it's still hard to pay rent and it's still hard to survive in this city. I'm doing a little better than I was then, but um, I have learned so much. I have been taught by so many generous people in this city and um, I'm still on my journey. Your story is an incredible one. I mean, to really be able to, you know, advocate for the same kinds of basic human rights, the same kind of basic justice as everyone else, even while you're struggling to get through it. And I think that's sometimes what political commentators don't understand when they call, you know, protesters, professional protesters and things like that. They don't understand that the vast majority of us actually come from the very same conditions and communities that it is that we're talking about. And so, you know, your story is a really powerful one. I understand that you've also authored a book that talks about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, the books uh, about, you know, what I observe in black communities across Canada, rather than being autobiographical, it's called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power. And uh, what I did was I took one year, the year 2017, and I broke it down month by month. So every chapter of the book is a month of the year 2017, January, February, so on. And in each chapter, I'm exploring a different facet of Black struggle, whether that be in the arts, in the education system, whether that be, of course, our struggles against the police, our struggles with the corporate media industry in Canada that keeps trying to erase our stories and erase the stories and existence of Indigenous peoples. 
And so uh, there is also a chapter explicitly about indigenous struggle in the middle of this book, because of course, 2017 marked Canada's 150th celebration of colonialism and genocide. And, you know, our country thought that that was something to celebrate, but indigenous peoples resisted and stood up to remind us what we're really talking about when we talk about Canada. And um, I was deeply, deeply inspired by the uh, unsettling Canada resistance that happened in 2017 and by projects that Indigenous peoples are undertaking all the time to disrupt settler colonialism. So it was a really great honor and a privilege to get to write a book. You know, I've written in mainstream media and, you know, you think that having a column is like this really big privilege, but, you know, you get 725 words one time a week and you're supposed to sum up all of your feelings about whatever is going on in the news in that very small space. And that was, of course, never going to be enough for me. So in order to talk more fully, to give context to stories of Black resistance in Canada, to give statistics, to share research of Black academics and researchers, to share the work of Black artists, um, to put everything into context so that this nonsense mythology that blackness either doesn't exist in Canada or that everybody in Canada who is black is doing fine. I needed a lot more space and context in the book to um, address those myths and to show not just the ways that black people experience struggle, but the ways that we're organizing and fighting back. I feel like every chapter really is about a struggle within a community to resist and fight back and to build each other up. So um, the book debuted in January. Um, it has been number one on the bestseller list in this country, I'm very proud to say. And I, I'm proud of that particularly because I've never had a full-time job in Canadian media, ever. Um, I've written award-winning magazine articles. I have a best-selling book. I have a documentary that's been seen by thousands of people all over the country that featured my work with the incredible Charles Officer. And yet nobody in this media industry, in the corporate media industry, wants to give me any work. Um, because my ideas about white supremacy and my increasing radicalism uh, is something that they'd rather not pay to hear every so often. So I'm still fighting. And this book uh, has been one of the most satisfying things that I've ever been able to work on. Well, it's incredible. And I think, you know, there's so many important things about this book. The fact that it was, you know, focused on 2017, you could literally have hundreds of those books. You know, what happened in 2016 and 18? Yeah. Because it's not like it's a, just a one-time thing. But the other way is in which you frame it so that, you know, the media often talks about... Um, black people or indigenous peoples like they criminalize them or victimize them and there's not a whole lot of focus on our resistance and power that like there, there's so many good stories about how we're you know taking charge and changing the narrative and I, and I really like even in your title that it's a year of resistance and you know black resistance and power I think that's it's really powerful and it's it's a message that our youth needs to hear and you know congratulations on it being a bestseller and Thank you. you know I to me you should be on you know mainstream media and the fact that 
they wouldn't have an actual truth teller, a credible truth teller is telling about mainstream media because I don't consider it radical at all when you're actually just getting to the heart of the matter and laying out the facts as awful as they are. What happens is it exposes people and the people who are exposed, the institutions that are exposed would like to label that as radical because it's a threat to the status quo. But you know, well, exactly. And I, and I, I feel as though my trouble in the Canadian media is not unique, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we can go back decades in this country and we can talk about how other black people who have brilliant ideas and brilliant critiques and analysis to share how they have been treated and mistreated. Norbasi Phillip comes to mind immediately. Um, you know, I think about even writers, contemporary black women writers that I know today, like, um, you know, L. Jones, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Maynard, mm-hmm. who, of course, are recognized in our communities as being incredible writers, but who want to write, you know, again, an 800 word op-ed for a media publication, a mainstream one. And people are like, well, are you sure you really want to say that? That sounds like, a li- I don't know how our audience will feel about it, right? And there's this questioning. And um, in my own personal experience, I, I think that being a darker skinned black person has also just kind of upped the threat level for white people that I get to go on TV every now and again and say something. Anti-blackness is very specific and it, has to do with a lot of factors, including the darkness of your shade of skin. And so we actually do see often that lighter skinned people have a little bit of an easier time if they're black in getting into media spaces and being allowed to be a a presumed spokesperson for others. But those who are darker skinned, those who identify as women, those who identify as queer or trans or gender nonconforming, are not getting those uh, many platforms and those many opportunities. So um, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about media. And what it is for me, um, Pam, is it's, it's challenging because I have to challenge myself why I want to be included in a media landscape that hates me and hates my people and is doing so much work to keep us in unsafety and unfreedom. Why do I want to work for them? And why do I want their money? Well, it's because I grew up believing in media. I grew up listening to the radio every day. CBC never left the dial when I was a child at home. I grew up in a family where we would watch the news and where we would talk about the things that we were seeing and hearing. That's how both of my parents were. And, um, I had a certain belief and I didn't think about the idea that these are corporations and that corporations actually have a different mission than I do as a freelance journalist fighting for black liberation. So it's like, you got to get over it at some point and say, they don't want you in the club. So if you don't get into the club, maybe to something that you're doing to push them to something that you're doing to unsettle them. It it really sucks not having a full-time job ever. But uh, our communities have had to struggle and we've had to pay the price for our beliefs. And, and, and I'm not ever angry at anybody who succeeds in media, 
I, I might be a little jealous or bitter sometimes, but I'm not mad at other people who succeed in the industry. I just know that doing what I do, it's very unlikely that I can ever find a space that will support me to truly do the work that I want to. And again, like writing a book and having an editor and um, Martha Kenya Forstner, who's incredible editor with uh, Penguin Random House, who her and her team wanted me to say, say anywhere else extremely rewarding experience i'm glad it's there i mean these are huge resources resources not just for allies but also for people in the black community the more we as different peoples are able to show our youth you know that we're represented even if it's a battle right now i think that's just going to empower us and you know one of the reasons that we're here today is to talk about what's happening in the United States. And there is so much all over social media that I think I think some people don't know all of the facts or what's happening. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a, you know, a short chronology on what led up to the current protests. We know that there was a, a black man, George Floyd, who was killed by a white police officer. But can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the context? Because it wasn't just George Floyd that's been killed recently. No, that's correct. Um, so, yes, uh, people will probably by now be familiar of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And we have to call it what it is. It's a murder. Mm -hmm. um, he was murdered by a police officer and three accomplices who stood and watched the murder and essentially presided over it. Uh, the story was that George Floyd went into a local shop and tried to pay with a counterfeit $20 bill. That's what cost this black man his life because someone called the police. The police responded to him with this uh, assertion that he had tried to pay with a $20 bill and that ended in them arresting him and an officer named Derek Chauvin pinning uh, George Floyd to the ground with his knee and suffocating him. Somebody cop captured this on video. It was captured in many different places on video actually. And I think that is what has sparked this latest outrage from black people because we don't want or need to see a black person dying to understand it. But there's such an appetite for our death and for images of our death. We can, we can, we can trace this lust for our violence, uh, the violence done against us back to the time of lynching and the photographs and postcards that white people would make of lynchings of black people and whole families and communities would come out and pose beside murdered black people and they would make them into postcards and they would send them around to everybody and you know people want to believe that watching a video of a black man dying hearing his last breaths hearing his last words hearing him beg for his life they want to believe that if they can convince themselves that they're looking at that with a sympathetic eye that it's different from looking at the lynching photos it's no different it's the exact same thing um, so the reproduction of this image all over the news has 
sent black people into an outrage where we have gone out into the streets, where we have demonstrated, where in some cases, yes, we have smashed property, which compared to taking a life, I mean, get your priorities straight, people. What are your priorities? How much death are black people supposed to put up with peacefully and quietly? Not that I think property's destruction is violence. I don't. I think mm-hmm. we have to distinguish between those two things. But yes, it's not also just about George Floyd, as you alluded to. It's about other instances of violence in the United States against Black people, some that are very public and some that um, people have never heard of. And they're not all death. So for example, there is the killing of uh, Breonna Taylor in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And nobody has been arrested for police executing a search warrant and killing Breonna Taylor on March 13th. So even this, the minimum of arresting people who engage in murder, still not happening for Black people. Um, And then, of course, we are also watching as a racist president of the United States of America has allowed COVID-19 to ravage Black communities in America all across the country and is intentionally trying to reopen uh, uh, shuttered stores and businesses as if millions of people getting infected and thousands of Black people dying is just, um, it's inconvenient to the president of the United States at this time. Black people are suffering a lot in that country. We're going to talk about Canada as well, but um, the leadership, the resilience and the struggle and the transforming of pain into something that we can actually use for our liberation. This is what black Americans have done. This is what black Americans continue to do. They are not alone. We are in solidarity with them and we do those things here in Canada as well. But I do have to um, say that it is the strength of our friends in the United States who are black and who have uh, the allyship of those who are not black, who have really made it possible for our rage and our desire to be free to be seen once again around the world in the most difficult circumstances under a global pandemic that is disproportionately killing our people. So um, that has been quite something to see and to experience. You raise this point, you know, about President of the United States. Not only is he not sending urgent care to Black communities who are most devastated, but he seems to be taking steps that would actually make it worse. And then during all of these protests, instead of calling for an end to police violence, he's saying, yeah, police, you know, go out there and don't be nice. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. And really seems like he's trying to incite the very violence that the majority of us are against. Well, we don't need to be him to understand what he's doing. He is a white supremacist. I mean, there's, there's really... We, we waste time to say anything else. He, he is the embodiment of white supremacy. I don't believe that racism lives in the individual. It is a social and political phenomenon, a global one. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump is happy to exemplify white supremacy in all of his behavior and all of his rhetoric. 
he is beyond dangerous and he is killing black people every day through his actions and through his inactions we like to pat ourselves on the back so we get to see black suffering in real time in the united states and we get to tell ourselves as canadians oh well it's not as bad here we literally get to say it doesn't matter how bad black people have it here because somebody else has it worse. I always am fascinated at the way that anti-blackness is always a race to the bottom, and it's always an attempt to completely devalue black people's expectations to the lowest possible denominator. We shouldn't even expect to be allowed to live, and if we're allowed to live, we should be grateful for it. That is anti-blackness, and that is white supremacy, and this very passive-aggressive form of white supremacy that exists in Canada is just as deadly. I want to talk about Regis uh, Korczynski-Paquette, if I can. Yes, please. Who, yeah. Um, this is a 29-year-old Black woman who also um, has uh, Indigenous ancestry and who lived in an apartment building in Toronto on the 24th floor with family members uh, until Wednesday evening in Toronto when the police were called to her apartment. Uh, the police arrived, and for some reason, they separated Regis from her family members who were also there, and the police were in the apartment alone with Regis. That was the last time her family members saw her. And after um, a time of hearing her cry out to her mother for help and then a silence, a police officer came out and told the family that their daughter was on the ground. Um, the police say that they had nothing to do with it, of course, but that's what they always say. And so it's being investigated now. It's being investigated by the Special Investigations Unit in this province, which is uh, primarily, of course, made up of former police officers and which is an agency, I don't mean to tell you, that clears 97% of the police officers that it investigates. Um, so thousands came into the streets in Toronto and in other places across the country this weekend, not just in solidarity with George Floyd's family, or Breonna Taylor's family, or other people in the United States who are suffering right now. But with the family of Regis Korczynski-Paquette, um, a 29-year-old woman whose body lay on the ground for, my, uh, my account is just over six hours after the police responded. I actually went to High Park on Wednesday evening when it was reported that this incident had happened. I arrived at High Park just after 10 o'clock and uh, the police had been called to the apartment at five o'clock. Pam, her body was still on the ground underneath an orange tarp wrapped in a body bag. I could see her blood on the ground still when I got there. Why? Why did it take six hours for her body to be removed from that scene while her family members were still out front of the building, grieving and trying to understand what had happened. They left Mike Brown's body in the street after they killed him in Ferguson, Missouri uh, in 2014 for four and a half hours. And that became an emblem of the callousness 
of police brutality and the lack of emergency responses in the United States. But a woman who's black here is said to just have mysteriously fallen and her body can't be moved for six hours and her traumatized family and neighbors have to deal with that right after she's been taken away from them. Disgusting. It was disgusting. And I am the only person that reported that as a fact. Uh, CBC reported that the family said that her body lay there for hours. Well, weren't you on the scene? Isn't it your job to confirm a very basic fact like that? That's not somebody's opinion, but which you can observe or which you can talk to other people who observed it. But no, it was that the family, as if they were making an allegation, said that her body lay there for hours, according to CBC. Nobody else even reported it, even close to accurately. This is the callousness with which our authorities treat black life in Canada, but then they want me to watch TV and get mad at Trump and the Americans. I see so much social media and even mainstream media chatter about this point in time or about this series of incidents as if this is the first time that we're talking about the hashtag, I can't breathe. I mean, the people on social media saying, hey, let's make this a hashtag. And it's like, are, are you forgetting about Eric Gardner or all of the other black people who have been killed by police, but it didn't become media famous? or it wasn't reported in the newspapers, or, or one of my pet peeves, the way the media, if they do report it, report it like it happened by some kind of ghost. Uh, a police shot off their weapon. A police officer's weapon was discharged. Yes, yeah. the, passive, the passive voice. And you see media doing this all the time. So when the media are reporting mm -hmm. on things, they say that, you know, protesters smashed or protesters broke or protesters did this or that. But when the police do something, it was a man was taken down to the ground. A man was taken into custody. A woman found herself face down on the ground with her hands cuffed behind her. Yeah. Like these are literally the descriptions, the cowardly descriptions that the media makes. And a big part of that is that if you've ever been in a newsroom and seen how a newsroom works on a given day, reporters in mainstream media are talking to the police all the time. They rely on police for information that they deem to be credible and worth reporting. So if the police do something wrong, our media actually doesn't know how to handle it because they don't have the assumption that the police can engage in crime. They're like, these are the guys we go to to tell us who's bad. So we don't actually frame them as being the violent ones. And that's what I laugh about people talking about property destruction as violence. You literally won't report a police officer killing somebody as violence, but you want to report the property damage that happens as a result of that as violence, which it is not. Um, people are trying to have a big debate in Toronto about how Regis korczynski Pocket actually died. Did the police throw her or push her off the building? Did they scare or intimidate her to the point where she was backed up against the balcony? Did she choose to jump off the balcony? People are trying to debate these things. Where I look at this, if a police officer is dispatched to a scene, it's because it's their job to keep everybody in the interaction safe. So they failed. 
And I don't have any shame in saying that the police failed to do that because that was their responsibility. The police do not use de-escalation tactics. And so just the fact that this woman was separated in this physical way from her family by like six police officers, but then mysteriously, so they, they had enough control of the situation to keep her away from her family members, but presumably not to stop her from going over a balcony to her death 24 stories down. It's extremely, extremely problematic. But I don't want to have the debate about what happened that day. What I want to say is don't send people with guns to our community. Don't send people with badges and body armor and a license to kill who have a history of murdering us to come and solve an altercation that is not about them and doesn't require their use of force. Send somebody with de-escalation training. Send somebody who knows how to deal with people who may be in crisis. Send somebody who can offer first aid and other kinds of supports, who knows how to talk. Send that person. But the white settler state is like, well, what if things go bad? We need to be able to use lethal force. So white people in this country cannot feel safe unless they can direct these, you know, brutes to use lethal force and then get away with it. Their safety is derived through violence. And white supremacist Canadian society does not want to admit that, but that's the fact. If, if you're more scared of us walking free than you are of the police killing us, you are reinforcing the white supremacist settler state. And I will say another thing. I could talk about this particular issue all day, but people are also acting like it's truly unique or weird that a woman would fall from a balcony and that members of her family would say that the police were responsible for that. Um, first of all, there was a woman that fell from a balcony in Moss Park in late 2018 after she was said to be sitting on the ledge and the police came to respond to the call. The SIU investigated that case, and Pam, their story in the end was that one of the police officers tried to grab this woman off of the ledge, and that she turned around, saw the police officer, and intentionally used him to push herself off the balcony. That's literally in the SIU report. That's what they concluded. So is it really so strange that people would say that the police caused somebody's death off of a balcony? I've been researching stories just in Ontario in the last couple of years. Police coming to somebody's house because they uh, are on probation and banging on the door and terrifying the person who ends up dead on the ground several stories below. I've seen stories of police officers who say somebody was going to jump from a balcony, so they were tased and the person died from being tased by the police. These interactions are happening in Ontario all the time. And because our media is like, oh, well, you know, the violence happens to the people down in the States. These things get reported once and then they fade away as if they never happened. So our obsession with keeping anti-blackness at a distance from us means we don't report these things. Our obsession with pretending that the police are good for poor people, are good for indigenous people, are good for people in crisis, means that these stories happen all the time in Canada. It's not even hard to find them, but no one in our media connects them like we connect things in the United States and say, aha, this is a pattern, this is a system. We, ref 
refuse to do that. And that's even with some in mainstream media having all of the relevant information at their hands. I mean, look at CBC. They did that expose, deadly force. How many yes. people are shot and killed or, you know, police involved killing is what they like to call it, um, of Black and Indigenous peoples grossly overrepresented in every area of the country. It would be so easy for CBC to say, hey, look, look at the expose we did. And now let's connect this to, say, Toronto, where we exactly. know that the statistics are 70% of, of police killings are Black people. And yeah, Canada's problem is just as bad. That's their own data. It's, it's as if it all happens in a vacuum and that every day the media wakes up and wipes its memory about what it knows about settler colonialism, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity. It just wipes its memory clean collectively and then goes off on its merry way to work as if, oh, who knows? Well, we're here to really investigate. We're really here to investigate and investigate and investigate, but can't come to any conclusions. And I mean, I had to leave the only mainstream writing job I had at the Toronto Star because I was willing to draw those conclusions where other writers weren't. And the Toronto Star didn't like it and repeatedly tried to discipline me for doing that or for acting out in the service of Black liberation in my own time. So you have the likes of Naomi Klein, Mark and Craig Kielberger, Michelle Landsberg, Catherine Porter, all activists, all very well-known activists, and all former columnists at the Toronto Star. Never heard any stories from any of them about how they had to stop doing their activism because it was somehow in conflict with their opinion writing. But that's what happened to me. I engaged in a demonstration and the Toronto Star said, this is a conflict of interest. No, you're just anti-Black. But you're couching it in this notion of objectivity because in white supremacist Canada, a black person giving their opinion too loudly and freely is a you know conflict of interest now. So it's not just me, you know. I've seen people in my um, contemporary circles like um, Vicky Machama, Aziza Kanji. Uh, I, I I've seen so many talented people miss out on opportunities or be pushed out or forced out because of culture of opportunities where they deserved to be thriving and moving up. But this just goes back to what I was saying earlier about like, we have to recognize the limitations of a media culture that's built on capitalist, um, you know, profit rather than actually telling the stories uh, that will liberate people and that will shine light on power. So um, mm -hmm. it is frustrating what the corporate media does, but we shouldn't really expect anything else. And we have to build our own alternatives and our own storytellings uh, so that we have spaces to say what we need to say. Well, and I, I think that's one of the benefits for all the difficulties with different formats of social media. One of the strengths of it is that finally our voices are out there. And it's not about whether you have ad revenue or whether you're upholding a certain corporation. It's a place where to some extent, we get to say what we want to say and really show that everything that's going on doesn't just happen. So sometimes, you know, in diversity and inclusion conference, they will say, look, well, you know, no one's being blatantly racist, that this is, this is so systemic, people aren't even aware that it's happening. But in fact, 
you have to work exceptionally hard to erase or silence the voices of black people. And you have to work even harder to try to keep up the fear and the vilification of them and to make sure you don't show all of the stories of strength and unity and motherhood and fatherhood and community and education and all of the things that, you know, the power that emanates from black communities and the leadership, you know, from black communities. You have to work really, really, really hard to make sure that doesn't happen while at the same time, police officers do the same thing. They have to work really hard to make black people look like criminals. And, and one of the things I wanted you to address about these protests um, is all of these white police, I don't know what to call them, vandals or agitators mm. that are not just, you know, they're going around knocking over old people and women and, and macing children and engaging in violence that's unprovoked violence, first of all, um, and, you know, recent reports of shooting, but also behind the scenes, you know, with masks on, busting windows, setting cars on fire, doing things that they know will be blamed on the uh, black community and say, look, see these protests, all this property destruction, we should be very fearful. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, because that, that's actually work. You have to work at that to make people look bad. Absolutely. And I think that um, one of the lessons that we can glean from this is that you, you made an interesting point. You're like, I don't even really know what to call these folks. Um, they're white people. That's who they all are. And um, if they're not white people in the way that they identify or in the way that the world identifies them, they are beholden to white supremacy. Um, it's like really, really, really interesting to me how ordinary white people who are not from anywhere near Minnesota have just showed up in that city in recent days, as you said, not to demonstrate in solidarity with black people, but just to smash things and to create chaos. And we've actually seen um, people have disclosed uh, and infiltrated some of these white supremacist groups who are actively organizing and saying, let's actually go down there. Let's start as much trouble as we can. But I mean, I've been seeing this for years. I went to Ferguson in 2014 and there were just all these white men with, uh, you know, really heavy, uh, uh, like artillery, <laughs> like automatic weapons and bullets strapped across their chests, just walking around Ferguson, just these white dudes. And you know, there's, there's national guardsmen by the thousands patrolling Ferguson during this time. There's literally like armored vehicles rolling through the streets. But these white men are allowed to walk around calling themselves oath keepers and saying that they're there to keep the constitution protected and nobody's beating or arresting them. The peaceful demonstrators who were outside the Ferguson police station for months, they were the ones who were getting beaten up and arrested every day. White people are the police. If white people aren't the ones in the suit patrolling, they're the ones calling the police, like the woman that we saw in Central Park recently, mm -hmm. or Barbecue Becky, or Carding in Toronto, where the more white the neighborhood is, the more likely a black person is to be stopped by the police. How does that happen? Because of a few racist bad apples on the force? No, because of the average white person thinking that it is their right 
to bring an armed response to a black person who they don't want to see around them. So whiteness is policing and policing is whiteness and the right that people take upon themselves in these moments to engage in violence or to call violence onto black people that's really one of the fundamental ways that white supremacy operates we get stuck when the conversation is about individual actors racism is not about individuals or else we would have smashed it a long time ago it would have really been a lot easier if that were the case but that's not the case Racism is systemic, racism is global, racism is insidious. And I really loved the words of Ruha Benjamin, a sociologist in the United States, who I saw talking recently about how racism is productive. And she said, when I say it's productive, I don't mean that it's good, but that it actually generates things that benefit white people, that it's not just a destructive force for black people, it actually feeds, it actually morphs, it changes to adapt itself to its situation so that it can hide and be undetected or be unnamed. It is a productive and, um, and um, kind of evolving social phenomenon so that things that people obviously would have said were racist in other contexts, white supremacy figures out ways to make it doubt. Oh, is it really racist? Well, did he really say black people? He didn't say black people, so you can't say that that's racist. That's an evolution of white supremacy. Um, having a prime minister do blackface as many times as Justin Trudeau did, and then immediately be like, well, black people, you'd better shut your mouths about my blackface or else you're going to get a conservative prime minister. That is a highly evolved form of white supremacist rhetoric. And we have to be able to recognize it in all of its forms and not just, you know, the overt person calling you the N-word form, which is the only form that people seem to be able, even in this modern time, to recognize. Before we let you go, I have two really important questions. I'd like to ask from you the ways in which allies can help Black communities in respectful ways, as opposed to some of the problematic ways in which we see being promoted on social media. And number two, you know, if you could leave some of our youth with some of the positive stories, like the strengths and the power that are coming out of Black communities and Black advocates around their you know, advocacy and their resistance and their protests. Let me start with the first question about um, non-Black people. First of all, I think like we should temporarily retire this word ally because whatever value it had before has been destroyed by whiteness centering itself as it always finds a way to do. You don't get to call yourself an ally to my struggle and my oppression. I say, this person helps me. They are my ally. You don't start coming around centering yourself in my struggle and giving yourself uh, a Boy Scout badge and a cookie because you consider yourself my ally. That has to stop. And that because especially white people, but not limited to white people, mm -hmm. really like doing that to black people. It has watered down the value of that word. Let, let us call you an ally if we want, but even better than that, stop focusing on titles and just do what you know to be right in the struggle. Don't talk about it. Stop making words the center of the struggle. They aren't. 
actions are, sacrifices for black people who you might not know and will never meet and will never say, hey, thank you to you for being my ally. That's the work, not this performative nonsense that we're increasingly seeing. I, li I live in Toronto, and that means that I am on the traditional territory of many nations, but you know, specifically the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. What I try to do is learn. The real tool for, as you mentioned off of the top, decolonizing our minds and our spirits and our bodies is a lifelong commitment to figuring out how to do that. The same way that you wake up in the morning and say, how do I take care of my own body? How do I take care of my own mind? How do I love and nurture my own family? Your commitment to anti-racism and to so-called allyship has to be as devoted to that. And you can't do it unless you're engaging in a lifelong learning struggle. So I have found that particularly um, Haudenosaunee people in this part of what we call Canada have taken so much time with me, Pam, to teach me about what settler colonialism means from their perspective, to teach me about the two-row wampum belt covenant, to teach me about our opportunities as Black and Indigenous peoples together to fight colonialism, to teach me about some of the ways of thinking and philosophical and religious and spiritual traditions that have been erased by colonialism here. Those lessons are really valuable to me and I just keep trying to learn more and more. It draws me in and makes it relevant and makes it visible and makes it tangible for me. And I don't want indigenous peoples or white folks to center language in a decolonization struggle. That's like the minimum. And I wanna leave you with a story because you brought something up that really made me remember something about the strength and resilience and the power of our communities and the victories. It's hard any time a black person dies at the hands of the police in Toronto for me to not think about Andrew Loku, who I never met. Andrew Loku was 45 years old and he lived in a building leased, uh, his unit was leased to him by the Canadian Mental Health Association. Andrew was from South Sudan. He came to Canada as a refugee, as so many South Sudanese people have in war. And Andrew lived in this unit where one night the police were called because he was having an argument with his neighbors. And within seconds of seeing Andrew in the police officers named Andrew Doyle shot and killed Andrew Loku in that apartment hallway who really have been one of the most dominant forces for fighting back against white supremacy that I've been able to witness in my lifetime, they organized for Andrew and had an event right near his apartment near Eglin in the summer of 2015. And the media came in large force to see that vigil for Andrew and to hear the speeches and to see Black people crying and holding each other and remembering Andrew. But once they had gotten that footage, Pam, they left. And then they missed what I thought was the most transformative and revolutionary part of that gathering. Because we started marching down Eglinton Avenue West, 
that's what's known in Toronto as Little Jamaica to many people. And there's a lot of Black-owned businesses in that part of town and a lot of Black people living in that part of town. And so I think it was really important for the demonstration to happen there. And I knew how important it was when I started to see Black people come out of their businesses and their homes on Eglinton Avenue and either join the march or start high-fiving and hugging the protesters and saying, we're so glad to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Seeing cars stop in the middle of the street and people cars just to come and hug or high-five somebody before getting back in again. And, and the, the solidarity and this, this moment where we were all seeing each other as Black people. And, you know, the media had gotten their sound bites, so they weren't there to see that incredible expression of black grief and mourning and of black hope but then of course black lives matter led us all onto the allen expressway and you can believe the cameras came back real quick and the rest of the story from the media was about how dare these people block a highway but they missed us celebrating and living and dancing with one another they weren't there but we were there and we know that that happened. And those are the kinds of things that strengthen us that I don't even really think that the larger community has to see or know about as long as we know that those things are happening and we are seeing and strengthening each other's incredible struggle. That's a story that I really always remember. It couldn't have happened without the leadership of Black Lives Matter Toronto and all the people in healthcare and mental health services who stood up for Andrew after his life was taken from us by the police. The strength of our communities, the resilience of our communities thing. I, I hate that we have to be so resilient because we are so constantly under attack, but I love black people for the way that we not only survive, but we do it in style. Thank you for sharing that story because those stories are the important ones and you only get those stories from Black voices in Black communities who are living the pain and trauma that is the violence of racism in all of its forms all the time. And I really want to thank you personally for taking the time to share your knowledge and your experience and what is obviously a, a great deal of pain. The work that you do, I mean, I've been following you for years and you, you're always on the side of justice and love and resistance and power. And I celebrate you for that. And, you know, I, I stand with you in solidarity and action, my friend. And thank you for all the work that you do across this country and all the sacrifices that you have been making for years and years and years. All the time that I've been in this city and started to have my own political awakening, you've been one of the louder voices for justice not just for Indigenous peoples, but a sense of social justice, I think that is more universal and to be invited to participate too. I've learned a lot from you over the years, so I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. Well, we're gonna get this done together. The way we're moving forward, we're doing it together, we're doing it in solidarity, and we're gonna make sure that our future doesn't have this in store for our grandkids or our great grandkids. and keep up the good work and please take care of yourself. And also thank you to all the Warrior Life podcast listeners for listening to this show. We don't talk about easy issues. Uh, we talk about really hard issues because we're not going to get anywhere unless we have 
the difficult conversations and we know all the facts and we confront it all and all the ways in which we are a part of the problems. And um, if, if you like this episode, please consider not just supporting the podcast, but sharing these episodes with social justice activists and, and sharing these episodes with the media so that we can hear the voices of people on the ground. And I'll make sure to post a link to Desmond's uh, blog and his book, The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power by Penguin Random House Canada. It's an amazing book and other resources in the description box below. We really need everyone's help to keep the focus on justice for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and thousands of others, not just killed by police, but locked up in prisons, assaulted by people, uh, discriminated against in society. It's a huge problem that's ongoing year after year, and we need to keep focus and attention on it. So please find ways that you can take action and ensure that Black voices are centered in all of our collective advocacy for justice around anti-Black racism. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliyaz.